That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness, far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and aeon-long death. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm Ja. Welcome to Genre. We just read H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. This is part of our month-long look at lost world narratives. Each month, we're picking a different genre of book and giving it a go. Guys, what did you think of this one? Fun and spooky. Uh, much different from last week, where we have three men going on a nice... Uh, well, there's a perilous, a perilous journey into the center of the earth. Three different characters, very focused on the differences in the characters. And this, it's two men who are scientists and have since gone insane because of what they saw in Antarctica. Scary penguins, goo, everything they saw in the Mountains of Madness. So it's a, it's a different um, structure of a story altogether, although we're still going into the center of the earth, more or less. Feels different. Yeah, I'll be honest, I didn't really sleep much last night. This this story is terrifying. <laughs> All I could hear as I was trying to go to sleep in the distance. Tekalili! Tekalili! Terrifying. <laughs> Those damn penguins! Those damned penguins. Yeah, I've never been afraid of penguins before. And his, his penguin hate from the very beginning. This book is explicitly like anti-penguin propaganda. Fat seals and terrible penguins. Well, I think we live in a pro-penguin age. Like, the Happy Feet agenda has made it so that we view penguins as these lovable, um, even jolly creatures. But yeah, I guess I guess maybe to someone writing in, what, uh, 1918, penguins are this, like, weird walking bird that lives in a herd in Antarctica, and that's it. Uh, yeah, I, I had... The, the true challenge of this book was not, like, the unnameable horror of millennia-old monsters. It was just trying to understand Lovecraft's hatred and disgust with penguins. Not even just millennia. Another difference, actually, between this book and our past two Lost World books is we're not just talking about stuff as old as the dinosaurs. H.P. Lovecraft is saying, the dinosaurs, they're infants compared to these monsters. These things are over, you know, they're they're almost billions of years old. <laughs> they're, they're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of years old, way before the dinosaurs, come from the stars, accidentally or maliciously create everything that come after them. There's a weird, seedy underbelly to the, the center of the earth in Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. So our character, he's part of an Antarctic expedition. And really, I suppose the structure of this book is a retelling of what happened. We don't get this story as it happens. Really, the character is writing to an audience. Uh, there's there's about to be another Antarctic expedition. This one um, financed and ran by some people named the Starkweather Moore Party. And our character is trying to actively dissuade them from going to Antarctica by telling them what he saw when he went to Antarctica. And there's a sense that they stumbled upon something that humanity, I guess, shouldn't see, shouldn't awaken. It's like a warning of, like, if you, if you go too far in, like, certain unknown horrors will will arise and yeah i don't know i think part of the interesting aspect of lovecraft is the non-specificity of what exactly the danger is there's individual death but there also seems to be a kind of like larger species-wide death and danger that's hinted at and the sheer scope of the narrative, as Bob's already mentioned, is is awe-inspiring. Just these hundreds of millions of years and the descriptions of uh, where they are are so incredible. Like we're talking about like f- potentially 40 feet tall mountains in the middle of the Antarctic. The scale of what's going on is so large that it's almost inherently terrifying in and of itself. 40,000 foot. How tall is um, Everest for comparison? Like 20-something. Yeah, so 
more than double the height of Everest, these impossible mountains. So not not only is it better than the dinosaurs, it's taller than Mount Everest. It's these impossible mountains of madness that go way far back in time. And like you said, it is very ambiguous, all of the horrors. And a lot of it comes through feeling and uh, like weird reference to other things. At one point, they're being chased by monsters. And the, the narrator's sidekick, who has gone too crazy to properly function anymore, he just starts naming... Um, the different stops of the subway. Yeah, he yeah. Names, you know, one stop, the next stop, and he goes faster and faster and faster, and you get the feeling of subway trains speeding up and chasing you down, not describing what is actually chasing them. They just are having the feeling of being chased down. By well, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like um, we can't describe what the monster is, but there's a poetic horror of, like, I can't tell you what it is, but it is like a subway train. And he tells us enough to get an yeah. image of it because what these creatures are are kind of like like a mass of teeming cells. Like it talks about it being teeming with eyes that appear and then disappear. It's just this like primordial ooze of flesh that seems to consume and kill and can kind of spawn appendages, you know, in order to do what it needs to do. But they liken it to a subway train. This person's reaction to seeing it is to name the stops of his hometown. I think in Boston was where he was naming... Boston, Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. South Station under Washington, under Park Street, under Kendall Central, Harvard. Yeah. Hey, that's good writing. That's great. At a later point, though, Danforth does kind of try and describe these characters. But again, as Zach said, like, it's always in relation to these other things and even things that he's read. Uh, like, he calls it uh, the, what what they saw, this thing that terrified him so badly, which really isn't well described at all, as we already mentioned. He says it's the Black Pits. The carven rim, the proto-shoggoths, the windowless solids with five dimensions, the elder pharaohs, the primal white jelly. And the uh, narrator of this story then uh, says that uh, when he is fully himself, he repudiates all this and um, he attributes it to his curious and macabre reading of earlier years. So there's this tension which the we're almost not sure whether we're, um, we're being what's being described to us is what has actually been seen or whether it's just kind of bricolage almost of all these different like strange gothic horror stories that they've read in the past, and especially this book that he mentioned in the Necronomicon, which seems to exercise a considerable influence over their imagination. So there's a weird aspect here where I wouldn't call him so much an unreliable narrator, but there's definitely an emphasis on their inability to describe these characters and therefore what they're really doing is kind of just rehashing bits and pieces they've pulled from stories and from the imaginations of, of writers and artists like a, another person they continually reference is this painter um nicholas rurick who's actually a real painter and he paints these magnificent scenes so I, I i'm it is very interesting the way that lovecraft doesn't even attempt to describe what's going on he just points at different signifiers and different references some of which are fictional some of That's which are just kind real. of turning around it over and over again just on the, the outskirts of what we're potentially looking at. And it's interesting, too, that you mentioned Danforth, the, the narrator's kind of sidekick who goes too crazy to recover, except for times of lucidness. He can only experience the horrors or recall what he saw when he is mad. That's when it comes out again. When he has these episodes of madness, he relives the things. And when he's outside of that madness, he's like, oh, no, that's that was just me having a crazy moment. Yeah. So the only way you can actually experience these things is going mad yourself, or it turns you so mad that you can't function. Yeah, I think that's part of the magic of this story too. I think it really, I think part of the fear is just the fear of the unknown. That's the, I think the biggest source of the fear in this in this story. And I think what it sort of points to is that there is this massive universe of potential threats, both beyond the earth and even below the earth, 
that we in our regular day-to-day life can't even possibly conceive of. The fact that he's writing stories about these things and including them, I think really does touch on this great fear of the unknown. And it just gives you enough of a glimpse to really trigger that fear. I think that's very interesting because... I think what's fascinating is how almost all of the horror here comes indirectly. There's very little direct encounters with these magnificent creatures. Well, most of the positive information that we get is really about this long-dead civilization which once inhabited this city that is located in the mountains. But the way they get this information is through looking at paintings on the walls very, in a very fragmentary manner, piecing the story together for themselves. Uh, the image kind well, of not really paintings, of, but like carvings, like basswoods. Yeah, works. yeah, paintings and carvings and art. And also sculptures. Yeah, but but I guess my point is, is they're not seeing this for themselves, and they're not even reading language. Mm. They're interpreting art. And... Uh, and the commentary, what happened to this civilization, of what happened to the Elder Ones, it's delivered through, like, the content of what they see. So they'll say, like, oh, and, you know, we can see that they created these Shagaths to be their slaves and to build mm. the cities for them. But then he'll describe how the Elder Ones had a kind of, like, degeneration in their society. And there was a kind mm. of falling. They, they slowly forgot how to traverse through space or, like, um, various yeah. other beings came to Earth. But the way he'll describe that that decadence of their civilization isn't through the content of the art. It's actually through the form. So um, in the later stages of the artwork that they encounter, he'll describe how it's almost like an imitation, a shoddy imitation of the once great artwork. And it's just interesting to me that we're not getting firsthand experience of any of this. Every aspect of this book is mediated through some other thing, through art, through references, uh, through real artists, through Edgar Allan Poe, until the final moment when we get a firsthand glimpse. And that's the climax of the book. And that firsthand glimpse is what drives people insane. And even that glimpse that we already mentioned is just, is only described by metaphor or by saying it's kind of like this, it's only really described negatively. So it remains basically obscure to us what it actually is that sends them so crazy. We just know that it's something so horrifying that it would send a, an otherwise per- person of otherwise sound mind absolutely insane. And, and then he goes even further too, because he says, and then what I saw was nothing compared to what Danforth must have saw. I was turned around at that point, but what he saw drove him completely insane. So we get we have no idea what was even more horrifying than what is described. And Danforth doesn't even see it directly, remember? They're flying in the plane away from the city in their final escape, and the image that he sees shows up in like the mirage, like like the image uh, through the like the reflecting light, the, the the image shows up in the sky. I have no firsthand experience of mirages, so I you know, I'm just taking Lovecraft at his word mm. that that's how it works. So he sees something in the mirage. And that's yeah. the final horror. And I mean, it's interesting that the whole the whole thing about these um, Shoggoths is that they are a formless creature. They have no form. The best it's described as when we do kind of see it is uh, terrible and indescribable. It's vaster than a subway train, but he also describes it as shapeless protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us. And it's crying, it's letting out this cry, Tekalili! Tekalili! But this isn't actually the cry that belongs to this monster, that's just its imitation of the old ones, and its imitation of the penguins. So we get this horrifying creature that sends the man insane, actually is basically formless and completely imitative 
in its in its ontology and its very being even the monster itself it's not just how we speak about the monster but the monster itself is fundamentally formless and indescribable thing well indescribable to the vision but also there's another sense that he draws upon too because these these beings both the elder ones and the shoggoths are described as having two separate scents. So, like, they're identifiable by how they smell, and the smell just, like, permeates the mm. air and fills the room. Yeah. But he won't tell you what they smell like. He'll just say that it's a horrible mm. smell. And then when we're introduced mm. to the Shoggoth smell, it's like the first smell, but it's worse. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting how he won't place his finger on a scent, but he'll tell you. Like, it, it's more of the same uh, uh, storytelling technique. I think the effect of this is... Uh, uh, to uh, stimulate the imagination of 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 the reader, right? Like in in lieu of an actual concrete description, I nonetheless find myself having my own imagination and my own images of these events. And I think there's some sense here in which the less that Lovecraft describes what's going on, the more just hints at how terrifying it is. The more I just kind of find myself filling in the blanks and scaring myself almost. Well, he does this with the city as well. So like one thing he talks about with the Elder Ones, the description of the Elder Ones I found to be baffling. Tentacles here, stalks there, somewhat like a vegetable, but really more so like an animal. There's very little for us to like really grasp and imagine what these Elder Ones are like. However, one aspect of them is that their heads are five pointed, almost like a starfish, I guess you could say. But that five-pointedness of them appears also in their architecture. So he spends a lot of time discussing the architecture of the city. And I'll read a little quote. The ceaseless five-pointedness of the surrounding architecture and of the few distinguishable mural arabesques had a dimly sinister suggestiveness we could not escape and gave us a touch of terrible subconscious certainty concerning the primal entities which had reared. As he's describing the architecture, it's hard for me to imagine what five-pointed architecture looks like. You know what I mean? Like, it, it goes along with, with the horror that you were describing earlier, John. Like, I have no idea what this architecture could look like, but I know that it looks strange. The closest I could think of is just kind of like a big a bunch of pentagons. Oh, okay. Stars. Like you say, like a starfish, stars, pentagon. You just, you find yourself just grasping for these images and really just doing your own work and trying to conceive of what that might actually look like. Lovecraft doesn't even give us so much, but I feel like he just gives us just enough to really lay a platform for our imaginations to really form a picture for ourselves. Which I wonder if is the sort of the source of his enduring popularity, you know, it gives it a kind of timelessness, I think. I think so. And it does give it a weird off-putting horror too. Like we talked about the scale and how everything's so much bigger, so much further back. It's so hard to pinpoint anything. And that kind of leaves you feeling a little weird Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House is really interesting because the haunted house is so scary because every piece of it is described as being a quarter inch off. And so she says, like, the, the feeling, you can't notice it ever, but you always feel a little off-put because you can't actually imagine what everything being a quarter inch off would actually feel like. It just makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, that's an interesting point of comparison. Though it is worth pointing out that with Shirley Jackson, the horror comes with everything not fitting right. Whereas with this, I get the sense that everything is, like, hyper-rational. It's so, like, it's beyond human understanding. That's what I mean. You can't conceive of it. You can't conceive of what that would actually be like. Everything's slightly off. What does that really mean? And this is like everything's slightly impossible to see. Yeah. So you can't really picture it in your mind. Even though, yes, it's totally rational. The Elder Ones created it. But it's according to their rationality, which only they can really perceive. And 
we can't. It's too much for us, almost. That's a great point. It's almost beyond the scope of our limited intelligence, which makes it inherently threatening because it means it's definitely more powerful than us. It's the same with their their science and their, you know, the Elder Ones had science far beyond us. They could travel through the stars. They could do all sorts of things. Uh, they, I think, are they traveling through dimensions? They're doing something that's impossible that we can't even conceive of potentially doing in the near future or in any future. They're doing things that are far outside of our capability and they totally... Uh, destroy our conception of reality. Knowing that these Elder Ones exist, ruin reality for us, mm. or, or for these two narrators in a way. And it's interesting, I think, that you bring up like their science and their technology here, because I think that's an important theme uh, in this story. And it's interesting that they seem to be very, very technologically advanced, but actually, they don't develop as much as they potentially could do. It says that uh, in the story that some of the sculptures in these tombs and ruins they found suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. So the sense in which they've not only surpassed us in technology, but they've also seen the result of that and actually found it dissatisfying and they've receded from doing that. So I think there's something vaguely incomprehensible about that as well, especially for us where we're constantly moving forward in technology and we feel like technology is going to be the answer to our problems. Whereas I feel like there's, there's an implication here that the, this superior life form has come to the opposite conclusion. Well, this seems to be a theme that Lovecraft keeps coming back to and revisiting. Um, previously, we read uh, Reanimator, uh, the story of Herbert West and his young lab assistant who discover or invent a serum that they believe will bring the dead back to life. So, you know, at first they're, they're injecting animals with it and, you know, it, it never goes right. Uh, but then they realize, oh no, we can't use this on animals. We have to use this on people. So they start reading the newspaper for car crashes and then stealing the bodies while they're still fresh and injecting the bodies. And of course, it never goes right. And then they run out of bodies. So they say, okay, we have to kill people in order to get this. And eventually... Well, obviously, they have to. Yeah. It's got to be fresh enough, Zach. Yeah. Well, eventually, Herbert West realizes the way to get like the greatest amount of fresh bodies is actually to enlist in World War One and be a frontline's doctor in the trenches. So he's just, you know, uh, they send him the bodies right off the battlefield. Anyways, the point being is everything about what Herbert West is trying to do in that Lovecraft story is driven by like the desire to know, the desire to advance science, that kind of like reason. He thinks he can cure death, but all it does is create this like zombie monster horde, which has, you know, passed on to the afterlife seen something horrible, and now wants to destroy Herbert West. Yeah, I can't help but feel those themes are coming back here. Absolutely. And there's also a funny sense in which we come to, I don't know if empathize is the right word, but the villain initially seems to be, or the antagonist initially seems to be these creatures that they uncover that then kill some members of their camp, these so-called old ones, who built these, what do you call them, like palaces, essentially, these abandoned palaces in Antarctica before it all froze over um, during the Ice Age. And there's a sense in which we, we see, as Zach already mentioned, that their society has gone downward into a period of decadence. And it does seem that this has been caused by their technological advancement. And we almost sort of feel sympathetic to them a little bit when we realise the true horror in this story is actually these so-called Shoggoths, who were created by the Old Ones in order to build their, their buildings and to colonise different parts of the planet and colonise other planets. are kind of like slaves almost that they've created for themselves that have then, it seems, rebelled against them and overthrown them. So I think there's uh, an interesting thing here where the 
technology brings down the old ones themselves and we sort of see that in real time as we go through the story and there's a moment where our narrator actually that moment of fearing the elder ones slowly fades away into fearing the shoggoths but there's a moment where the narrator actually comes to identify with the elder ones and i have a quote right here they were the men of another age and another order of being nature had played a hellish jest on them as it will on any others that human madness callousness or cruelty may hereafter dig up in that hideously dead or sleeping polar waste And this was their tragic homecoming. They had not been even savages. For what indeed had they done? That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epic, perhaps an attack by the furry, frantically barking quadrupeds, and a day's defense against them and the equally frantic white simians with the queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Poor Lake, poor Gedney, and poor Old Ones. They were scientists to the last. What would they have done that we would not have done in their place? So I think that the Elder Ones are a point of fear in this book for so much of it, but it's, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting turn by Lovecraft to have them be allies in a sense, or they are us. But what happens to them? Well, they're destroyed by their own creations. And it seems to almost be implicit then that what will happen to us, we will also be destroyed by our own creations. Yeah, I think that's a big theme, like you said, in Herbert West earlier, also in The Call of Cthulhu, which we read maybe a year ago, where people start reading this Necronomicon and it drives them so crazy that they have to kill themselves. And uh, now it's kept under lock and key, they say in this story. And only Danforth has read the whole thing, and he's obviously the one who's gone nuts. And at the end, when he's warning um, the new expedition, you know, this whole thing has been a warning, do not come here, whatever you do, do not come here, you're going to destroy all of Earth. He says that it will be absolutely necessary to let them know. And then he says... For the peace and safety of mankind, that some of Earth's dark, dead corners and unplumbed depths be let alone. They must be let alone. Lest sleeping abnormalities wake to resurgent life and blasphemously surviving nightmares squirm and splash out of their black layers to newer and wider conquests. So he's saying if you keep exploring, if you keep plumbing to the depths, the depths are going to be too terrifying. And it's such a it's such a contrast to the recent plumbing of the depths story that we just read, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, where we get scientific discovery and adventure and the kind of like romance of a new understanding of what it means to be human from going underground and seeing a place where dinosaurs and great apes and giant 20-foot-tall mushrooms are growing. But here, it's only horror, and it's only something destabilizing. I've heard of this this distinction. I don't know if it really holds, but some people have put forth this idea of a difference between, in fiction, I don't know about in movies, but between horror and terror, where terror is a story where your characters have to overcome something. You know, it is it is terrifying, it is scary, and it could kill them. But the whole bent or the whole drive of the story is their survival and them coming through and being able to save themselves. And then horror is something that happens that you witness or you experience that drives you mad or there's nothing you can do about it. It's just terrifying and scary. And now it exists. And now that you know it exists, it has ruined something, made something too horrible. I think that that is that this is just pure horror, like you said. Not not a terror story like Journey to the Center of the Earth, where they do overcome nature and they do survive. This is survival is almost worse than just dying because they've witnessed this horrible thing and now they have to live knowing that horror. I'm trying to think of other stories we've read that fall into this horror designation because it seems like so much of what we read that is technically the horror genre might actually be under your distinction terror. Like maybe yeah, John, that too. John William Polidori's The Vampire 
this view that the kind of like the aristocrats of, of London and, and of Europe who are like gambling and living licentiously are actually like undead creatures. I, I, I don't think there's a positive outcome to Polidori's The Vampire. So maybe that would be, you know, an actual horror story. I also think back to the post-apocalypse we read, especially like um, Octavia Butler's speech sounds. I think there's something in that story, this sense that if we lost our faculty for language, we would essentially just descend into absolute chaos, is in and of itself horrifying, right? We, we see that, and once we acknowledge that as a, an almost inevitability in her terms, then we can't live without remembering that. This idea is going to haunt us. And I think similarly maybe with um, the Ursula K. Le Guin story, Those Who Walk Away From Omelas, there's a sense in which it, there is a essentially a society whereby the, the abject and horrifying suffering of one child is the source of that or at least necessary for the happiness of an entire society uh, or essentially the broader point that we can't really have a happy and stable society without some people being essentially oppressed i think that's another horrific idea that once we've got that idea it's very hard to live on without and pretend it didn't happen i'd also point out harlan ellison's i have no mouth and i must scream i mean yeah. uh, being yeah. kept alive unnaturally with the same five people who all hate each other you have an artificially intelligent machine torturing people and I guess really playing tricks on them over food and having to travel great distances and the only way out is to kill each other. That really reminds me of my first year at university actually. (laughs) Yeah. And I think another thing, another thing that this story has in common with uh, the Harlan Ellison story, I have no mouth and I must scream in particular, is this idea of the creation coming to dominate and even destroy, or actually destroy in that case, the creator or the race that created them. In that case, mankind, in this case, the old ones and the Shoggoths. And we obviously, the most famous example of this in horror would be Frankenstein. So it's a very common trope, I think. But I suppose what Lovecraft does is displaces it from, from mankind to a sort of a superior race also made the same error. I think it's really interesting how humanity is in a sense created by the Elder Ones. So like the Elder Ones seeded life on Earth to create their show. It's certainly implied, yeah. But it seems to me that what yeah, what the implication is, is that life that wasn't created by the Shogos became reptiles, fish in the sea, perhaps to feed the Shogos. But then the implication being that humanity is like the fish food, the current step in the evolution of the Shogos food. You know what I mean? Like it's a really... Um, so with the previous books we've read, we've gone through this history of life on Earth, Journey to the Center of the Earth, or The Land That Time Forgot. All of them feature this kind of like paleontology lesson. First were these shelled fish, and then reptiles, and then dinosaurs, and then birds, apes, and then humanity. And humanity is like the top of the pyramid in these stories. But with this, you know, we might be the top of a pyramid, but that pyramid is like a cosmic mistake. It really puts us in our place as to what the significance of our lives and our you know intelligence in relationship to the other animals really is that's very true and it certainly ruins any idea and again i think this is maybe something related to horror is once you have this notion it's very hard to go back to the idea of a providential god that loves us all and created us to be happy and you know for out of love this is a very different uh, creation here we're created out of expedience and almost whim by this superior creature. And these superior creatures or like formless, oozing, horrifying imitations, things that are so terrifying we can't even look at them. These are the things that created us. So what's the danger here? If the Starkweather Moor Party comes to Antarctica, is it that they'll somehow lure the Shogoths away from Antarctica into uh, civilization? Or is it that the knowledge of humanity's place in the universe will become commonplace 
and create disillusionment among people. It could be. Or, or it could also just be a concern for their own well-being. I mean, it's quite clear that members of, well, members of the party here got killed by these creatures. And Danforth and the narrator almost themselves killed by the Shoggoth. So I think maybe he's almost just concerned for the safety of anyone who goes down below the earth in Antarctica. There, there are things that, like, not even about where it is, but things that they did witness that they say they will never describe. Like, they're sworn to secrecy about certain things for, for the peace and safety of mankind. The, the violence they do describe is really interesting, almost without context or explanation of the significance of it. So, in a manner that really recalls the John Carpenter movie The Thing, they arrive at this Antarctic camp that has already been destroyed. The dogs are dead. The people are dead. But people have their, like, organs cut out of them. Almost like the way you might hole punch a piece of paper. People have... There's, like, been an organ punch. And they find all of these organs for both, like, dogs and people arranged inside of a tent. Like, in the shape of a person and in the shape of the dog. And then it describes there being salt. Like, someone had broken into the stores and taken a bunch of salt and spread it around the snow in this region. But there's, like, no explanation for why anyone did this or what it, like what the significance of it is. And I thought that was so interesting that he would include this, this scene, but then it's only the doorway into what we're actually going to see later. Yeah, again, I just think the ineffability of that just adds to the horror, just like the indescribability of the monsters adds to the horror. I think the ineffability of the these scenes and what we see and the complete lack of any even plausible explanation for why this has happened is in and of itself kind of terrifying or horrifying as we might prefer to say i think the challenge of talking about hp lovecraft is that you can't describe it so in the absence of concrete description there's less and less for us to unpack you know what i mean so like in a sense all conversations about lovecraft tend to circle around a few common themes ineffability, fear of technology, the mythos. So in a sense, I can't help but feel like Lovecraft is the kind of writer who's like immensely pleasurable to read, but very fruitless to discuss. It's like a very private experience that you have reading Lovecraft. Yeah, it's kind of like that when you look up any of these elder ones on Google images or anything like that, and you see every image, you're like, nah, that's not scary enough. Nah, that's not quite right. Everyone's going to totally envision this never... Clearly, but everyone's going to have something completely different. And uh, yeah, anything we say, it is too much of a private experience. It's all going to contradict. Have any um, have any Lovecraft stories been turned into movies? Um, I just watched uh, The Color Out of Space uh, starring Nicolas Cage, which was um, just okay. You know, it's just okay. But Reanimator is a classic. Yeah, the film um, stars Jeffrey Coombs, who's like a... So first off, Jeffrey Combs is the narrator for the audiobook version of Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator. But also, if you're a Star Trek fan, he plays numerous characters in multiple series of Star Trek. So like Deep Space Nine, he's he's one of the villains. He just has this like really slimy aspect to his acting, which is perfect for portraying Herbert West. I know there's other Lovecraft film adaptations, but I'm not sure I've seen any others. Yeah, I just wonder how successful that would be, uh, given, as you mentioned, how the defining feature of Lovecraft is that defies representation in true literature in that sense. Literature that couldn't possibly be translated into any other medium. I think so. I think like Herbert West and Stephen King are often considered like equally important in horror, but Stephen King really focuses on characters and Herbert West, or sorry, not Herbert West, 
H.P. Lovecraft does not focus on characters much at all. Yeah, there's barely any characterization here, other than the fact that yeah. Danforth goes mad, but that's not really so much characterization, that's exactly. kind of just what he does. Yeah, it's just to prepare you for what you're about to read. We know he's younger, but that's about it. Yeah. So I think that's why we've seen more Stephen King movies and fewer H.P. Lovecraft movies. It's because, I mean, they're similar horrors, like it's similar ideas, you know, beings from the stars that undercut all reality. But in his movies, it is kids coming together to overtake them, to kill these these things. You know, humans still make it through in the Stephen King book, so, and so you can make a movie out of that, I think. There's hope in Stephen King. There's no hope in Lovecraft. Also, Stephen King has turtles. Lovecraft? <laughs> Penguins. Penguins. <laughs> Uh, We're inclined to think the turtles are kind of a benevolent animal. Here, the penguins are just evil. Yeah, just <laughs> evil albino penguins. Nine foot tall albino penguins. Evil nine foot tall eyeless, eyeless albino yeah. penguins. <laughs> Good God. That's it for H.P. Lovecraft. Join us next week for the final book in our Lost World reading. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach and John. Talk to you later, Bob and Zach. <laughs>